We are continuing in our series in Revelation uh, today, and then we'll take a pause, obviously for Christmas Eve, and then um, first couple of Sundays in January, but then finish up with maybe two more messages um, in, in, in January, so we'll be there. Um, and, and, you know, for those that, that, I'll repeat what I said last week, for those that maybe weren't here, you know, wondering whether it's appropriate to teach from Revelation in, in ad, Advent season. Well, one, the, the, the third section of our message today is all about joy, which is our theme, but um, I reminded you last week, or at least informed you last week, because I doubt we knew, but uh, Advent in the medieval times focused uh, on preparation for the second co- coming. There's a time of uh, fasting and repentance and anticipation of the judgment to come. And the, the four candles, instead of representing hope, peace, joy, and love, represented uh, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Uh, so um, it focused, instead of on the light of Christmas, on the darkness before the light. So, you know, I, we're good. We're good to, to stay in Revelation uh, in preparation um, for uh, Christmas. And um, there we go, getting my tablet to turn itself the right direction. Um, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation 17. Uh, and we'll be covering chapters 17, 18, and the first 10 verses of 19, though we will not read them all at one time. Uh, the subtitle for, you know, the series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The subtitle for this message is Come Out of Her, My People. Come Out of Her, My People. So let's read beginning in Revelation 17, uh, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New International Version of the Bible. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things, and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction." The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. 
The ten horns you saw are ten kings and have not yet received a kingdom, who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They will have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you to reveal to us the truth about the world we live in. Ultimately, Lord, our own reason will never suffice, for it starts within ourselves, and we need something from outside ourselves to teach us the way you've created the world, the way it functions, what is and what is not. Open our eyes, open our ears, write your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Among the cities of Roman Asia, now we call it Turkey, Competition and civic pride existed at a fever pitch, similar to how cities today compete for the Olympics across the world. Cities of Roman Asia were constantly competing to be the best in order to uh, experience the prosperity that came with that. Winning or losing had consequences in their wallets, so it mattered to them. The book of Revelation describes a war between the beast and the lamb. A war that takes place between two cities, Babylon, Rome, (laughs) we'll say in parentheses because that's the the thing they're not saying, but that they're explicitly declaring if you know how to read the signs. Babylon and the New Jerusalem personified in two women, the prostitute who rules the beast and the bride who follows the lamb. The visions of Revelation call God's people to come out of one city to live in another, to come out of Babylon and to live in the New Jerusalem. As the authors of Unveiling Empire put it, John is describing civic competition on a mythic scale. You know, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 competed with each other to win the prizes from the emperor, but this is civic competition on a mythic scale. Who cares whether Ephesus, Smyrna, or Pergamum is the greatest city. The real competition, they go on to say, is between Babylon and New Jerusalem, between the city of the beast and the city of the lamb, between the dragon's empire and the empire of the faithful followers of Jesus. These apocalyptic cities are, as the authors of Unveiling Empire put it, the master metaphor of the book. The master metaphor of the book. Now, the term used for Babylon translated prostitute in our text, more likely whore. I've tamed it a bit to harlot. Um, It's offensive. While the term for the new Jerusalem is glorious. But that was the point. It was saying something very offensive about Rome and the empire. 
And that was intentional. Uh, That was indeed subversive. Um, The contrast could not be more shocking. There's a pejorative term to call Babylon, Rome, a prostitute or uh, a harlot. Keep in mind, it was not an actual woman. It's the personification of a city. She was not in this occupation because of human trafficking. She is the cause of human trafficking. All the negative connotations, uh, in this case, are appropriate. We live in a day when it isn't proper to use the term harlot, and certainly not whore. Uh, John lived in a day when it was not proper to be a harlot. Rome, as we will see, is to, uh, to the eyes of the one receiving these visions, a harlot. Rome would have been very offended. In traditional interpretations of Revelation, the New Jerusalem does not exist at the same time as Babylon. Babylon ends and then the New Jerusalem begins, as it's traditionally taught. Um, It's hard to square with some of the details of the description of the New Jerusalem, however, because after it comes down out of heaven... We'll read this when we get to chapters 21 and 22. But after it comes down out of heaven, those who wash their robes have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the gates of the city, but the, quote, dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood remain outside the city walls, evidently not in the lake of fire at that point, which they were thrown in at the end of chapter 19. So how is it that they're now not in it? But again, We recall throughout the book that time keeps starting over again. That things go back to the beginning and go right through it again. And so that might well be another one of those, I would suggest it is. Now, that detail is rarely considered, though some who do recognize it propose the existence of an editor. (laughs) So you always do to solve your problems. Well, there must have been an editor. You know, the editor fixed it for him or actually created more problems, as in this case it would be. See, the editor rearranged the material, as they say, um, which presumes, of course, that we have the correct understanding of the text and not the text. And therefore, we know that it's not right the way it is. The editor somehow messed it up. But, of course, that was never the point of an editor, if there was an editor. The point of an editor would be to fix complications, not create complications. And so that doesn't really make any sense. I would suggest that if we just simply recognize what I pointed out earlier, that chronology throughout the book gets upended and visions regularly go back and re-explain history from beginning to end, that the problem disappears. As Warren Carter writes, The two cities coexist, with the New Jerusalem situated in the midst of Babylon's evil. Babylon and the New Jerusalem coexist in conflict with each other. Now, we do think that they only exist chronologically, sequentially, that, that Babylon exists, and then when it's destroyed, the New Jerusalem exists. If we, if we think that, then what we're left with is this idea, come out of her, my people, which we'll see is in chapter 18 when we get there. It's the focus of our, our, our message today. That that call is merely a call to come out and do nothing until the New Jerusalem arrives. Just kind of sit around and wait which, of course, does nobody any good (laughs) whatsoever. Um, I would say that rather that they exist side by side, the call to come out of one city and its politic 
is a call to enter the other city and its politic. By the way, a politic, we think of politics, well, in, in, in real life, just at its core, a politics is the rules and values for how we live and function as a society. So we are called to come out of one set of rules and, and, and values for how we live as a society and come into a new politic, a new set of rules and values for how we live as a society, those of the lamb, not those of the beast. So to come out of one is to come into the other. Jesus is all about that kind of change. See the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. George Caird puts it this way in his commentary. In the daily life of Smyrna and Pergamum, Babylon and Jerusalem exist side by side. Their citizens rub shoulders in the streets of Sardis and Philadelphia. The citizens of Babylon and the New Jerusalem rub shoulders every day in the streets of Tampa Bay, in the streets of St. Petersburg, in your neighborhood. We rub shoulders. We must recognize that so that we might begin to recognize the politic, the rules and values of Babylon and how they call us to live and function, and turn from those to the rules and values of how the Lamb calls us to live and function. So with our focus today, or while our focus today is on the harlot and the bride, um, being understood as two contrasting cities full of citizens that exist side by side in the same geographical space, our text is a call to come out of one and live in the other. We're going to focus more on the harlot today than we are on the bride because that will come. But we're going to explore it under three headings. The harlot's charms, the harlot's crimes, and the harlot's collapse. So our first heading, the harlot's charms. Well, the harlot's charms are very seductive. The identity of the city as Babylon in Revelation was easily discerned by a first century audience. In verse 9 of chapter 17, we're told that the woman sits on seven hills. Well, any first century audience would have seen that as a transparent reference to Rome and its seven hills. And, and of course, the little kings of the earth did give their power to the beast, if you will. And, and we, we know that just one example, King Herod, we, we, we talk about King Herod at this time of year. But he was a small king that gave his power. He, he, he functioned as an arm of the emperor. He didn't have real authority. It was uh, merely his uh, service to the beast that uh, gave him his power. Um, and then we see in verse 18 of, of, the first, of chapter 17, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Again, none other than Rome uh, in their day. And remember, our, our goal here is to ask ourselves the question first, what, how would the first audience have understood this book? Once we see how the first audience would have understood it, then we go, how, what does it mean for us? And all we're doing is applying the same rules of interpretation to the book of Revelation that we would to any other book. What is the genre? What, is, what did the first audience think? What, you know, what did this mean to that, gener- that generation? And then how, what does it mean to us? So we're just carrying that forward like we would to the book of Romans or any other uh, book in the Bible. Context tells us that Babylon isn't about the geographical boundaries of the city, of Rome, for instance, but the economic system of the city that enriches the people at the top. So really, especially when we get into chapter 18, what becomes clear is that we're talking about the economic system. And that's why the term harlot is quite appropriate or prostitute, because that's a matter of exchanging. It's turning everything into a commodity. It is about economics, if you will. 
Now, Rome is no longer the Babylon of our day. To identify Babylon, we must look at the characteristics of Babylon and realize that where we find those characteristics, we find Babylon in one measure or another to whatever degree those characteristics exist. Now, despite being a great city and the fact that she sits on many waters, John is brought to a wilderness in order to see her. While these things are geographically impossible, they are not symbolically impossible. And since this book is all about symbolism, it just throws them together. (laughs) Sure, you're you're on many waters, uh, you're a city, and you're in the desert. Makes no sense, but that's okay because they all point to spiritual realities. Um, The wilderness is significant because it is a place of testing for God's people. It is a place where the dragon pursues them in chapter 12 to persecute them. Babylon of their day, Rome, and Babylon of our day are places we live and breathe and places of testing for the church, for all of us. And Babylon has a lure for us. We are tempted by Babylon. We have to recognize that this isn't about people out there. This is about people in here. It's about our hearts. It's also the place of Christ's temptations. When Christ was in the wilderness, he faced the temptation. You remember that, that, that little temptation about, if you bow down and worship me, all the kingdoms of the world, they're mine. I'm going to give those to you and all their wealth and all their power. What is that? That's a temptation of Babylon. It's the one we face. It's the one the church faces today. And it's the one to which we must re, uh, say no. We must resist. It's, it's that desire, desire to gain things that causes us to compromise in order to attain the kingdoms of the world and all their allure. The many waters upon which the harlot sits are many peoples over which she rules. Sitting in the book of Revelation is symbolic of ruling over throughout Revelation. Uh, people sit on thrones many times, but whatever they're sitting on, they rule over. So she sits on many waters, which are people. She's ruling over these people, but she's also sitting on the beast, which means that she's actually ruling over the beast. Well, that's so true, because aren't all rulers subservient to the economic systems that enrich them? They're really only there because of the economics of it all, and that's what keeps the whole thing going. The economic systems of the world control the rulers since they also enrich them. So it's important to remember that The whole symbolism of harlotry is just that. It's symbolism. It's not talking about sex, but about idolatry. In particular, economic idolatry that leads us to think and live according to Babylon's politic rather than the Lamb's. I'm going to say that again. This whole system of harlotry that we're, 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 our symbolism of harlotry that we're reading about is symbolism. It's not talking about sex. It's not talking about how she dresses. It's not talking about any of that that you might think on the surface that it's talking about. It's talking about idolatry, the worship of other gods, in particular economic idolatry, mammon. <laughs> okay, Jesus said, you know, you cannot worship God and mammon, money. Okay, you're going to love one and hate the other. Saying the same thing here. That idolatry leads us to think and live according to Babylon's politic rather than the lambs. Let's talk about the allure of the harlot. Harlots are in the business of sales. Allure is essential to the task. 
Red, purple, scarlet are colors of royalty, position, power, status, elitism. The poor did not have those colors. The glittering gold, precious stones, and pearls are beautiful. In fact, it's similar to the description that we're going to later have of the bride. These precious stones, these pearls. Which means that at times it'll be hard to discern the difference between the bride and the harlot for the church. We must be very discerning. In chapter 17, verse 7, the angel asked John, Why are you astonished? Or as the ESV has it, Why do you marvel? It, I think in this context, is more likely, Why are you so impressed? Why are you so impressed? Which has a hint of rebuke both for John and really us, because we're seeing all of this vicariously through John. The point is this, the the harlot and her idolatry impress us and lead us to think and live according to Babylon's politic rather than Christ. The most effective harlot is the one that can convince the prospective client that she is in fact not a harlot, but a pure lover. And that's what Babylon seeks to do in our lives. This is good for you. This is what is best. This is what will enrich you. This is what will change your life for the better. Given the presence of Jezebel in the churches of Asia Minor that we read about in chapters 2 and 3, apparently she is often successful at convincing us that she's a pure lover. By the way, the description of the harlot harkens back to Jezebel in the Old Testament, which was mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. So we, we know that he's really drawing on the very thing going on in those churches, not some future entity. It was real and present for them. Now, it is a future entity because it's real and present for us too. And it will be for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. We must stop being impressed with the allure of wealth, power, and the beauty of the harlot, for it leads us into lives of idolatry. One author has suggested that the most successful story ever sold is not the Bible, but economics. I didn't say the most successful book. You know, if you want to look at how many books have been sold, I think the Bible wins the day as if that actually mattered. The most successful story ever sold, now that does matter, is economics. And I think our lives demonstrate that in the world. The harlot and her beast. It's an interesting relationship between these two. In Revelation, what, what is written on one's forehead indicates to what or whom they have allegiance. You think about the mark of the beast, the seal of the living God upon the foreheads of the great multitude, faithful followers of the Lamb. Well, the harlot's allegiance, she's got her own name written on her forehead, Babylon. She's she's allegiant to herself. She rules over the beast by sitting on him and has no allegiance to the beast, hence Babylon carries on beyond any single empire. Because she frankly doesn't care who the one at the top of the empire is. That matters nothing to her because she rules that. The description of the beast she rides draws on Daniel, and as we we saw earlier when we were looking at the beast, combines the worst characteristics of every beastly empire. It was manifest in Rome, in John's day, to be sure. Babylon, the system, is what produces the prostitutes, the mother of harlots, such as Rome or the great empire cities of the world that are so alluring, 
and the abominations of the earth. John's visions reveal the way things really are, not how they appear. In truth, the harlot will at times appear to have great allegiance to the Lamb. And so it's easy to get deceived. It's like, this, this is so Christian, it would seem, at times. Again, John is writing to seven churches in which the, this harlot has entered inside the walls of the church, Jezebel, who is leading people astray into allegiance to something other than the Lamb. The false teachers in those churches seemed loyal to the Lamb, but they were not. Their message offered greater appeal to the world and wasn't so particular about how we live. Yeah, oh, it's, it's okay to, to live this way, to do that, to disobey the Lamb here. It's easy to follow Jesus. Others, it's going to be more appealing. We're going to be a, a, a better place. Again, if we were all looking for a church and we visited the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, I dare say none of us would have picked the two that were only commended. And most of us would have picked Laodicea. <laughs> we just would. It's the place we'd be comfortable. It would feel right in every possible way. G.K. Beale notes that these are not merely misguided Christian. Jezebel and her followers, referring to those that were following Jezebel, are none other than Babylon herself in the midst of the church who eventually will be judged along with the persecutors outside the church. Babylon appears to be the city of prosperity, but it is truly a wilderness, a desert. Followers of the Lamb may experience wilderness in many ways. Our lives may feel like we're in a desert, but we're truly living in the eternal city. Rome is, in fact, not the eternal city because it will fall. That's what they call it, and they still call it to this day, the eternal city. Well, that is not the case. The harlot's charms are seductive. The harlot's crimes are destructive. And let's look under our second heading. The harlot's crimes. Chapter 18, verses 4 and 5. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. What are her crimes? Most notably... We read in chapter 17, verse 6, that she was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. This is reiterated in chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. So she's done something to God's people and prophets. Well, she's shed their blood, to be sure, and persecuted them. More than that, in chapter 18, verse 24, it says, In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, and who else? All who have been slaughtered on the earth. Right? That word slaughtered is the same one that we translate earlier in the book where the lamb slain and those under the, the altar who had been slain. It's, not, it's not just talking about dying. It's talking about a violent death. Those who have been brought to a violent death, you might say. Including the lamb who died at the hands of the empire. In chapter 18, verse 3, we read, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. So this gets to the second. So the first crime is 
what she does to God's people and all who die a violent death. But the next crime, chapter 18, verse 3, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Now pay attention to that word luxury because it's going to keep showing up. But notice the parallelism between having drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries and growing rich from her excessive luxuries. How did they drink the maddening wine of her adulteries? By growing rich from her excessive luxuries. I I don't know about you, but I like my comforts. I get used to my comforts. When we travel, the first thing I want to find is a coffee shop that I can sit in and feel like they care about me. It's a lie. They just want my money. But that's okay. I'll buy into the lie. I want my coffee and I want my comfort. It is so easy to get accustomed to luxuries that we once thought were unique and they pretty soon become essential to life. We demand them. We demand them. Now, maybe you've never had that experience. I can just speak for myself. But I suggest that if you haven't experienced it, just talk to somebody next to you. They may have. Well, as Americans, I think we all know. Just visit another country and you suddenly realize just how many things you've grown used to that many people in the world don't even... An option, it's not even optional for them. Lest we think this is a minor theme, verse 7 of chapter 18... Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Or verse 9. When the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Now this luxury was rooted in an economic system that despite the evident wealth and luxury it produced was built on the labors of others. In chapter 18, verses 11 through 17, we read this, The the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Now note that all the cargo that we're going to read is luxury items. There's nothing in here that is not a luxury item. Verse 12, cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and of olive oil, of fine flour and of wheat. Cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. I'm going to pause here for a moment. That line's important because everything above that line is built on that line. And it literally reads, and bodies, even human souls. That's what we're trading. Bodies, even human souls. And it doesn't mean souls as distinct from bodies. That's not what it means. Souls is most commonly just lives and bodies. Even human lives. It continues, verse 14. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. 
The fine linen of the harlot is deceptively similar to the fine linen of the citizens of the New Jerusalem. They both are wearing fine linen. The difference is one is rooted in earthly luxury and the other is in their righteous deeds. The acts of love and compassion toward other humans. I'm sure glad that people living in excessive luxury while others are crushed by the system is no longer a problem today. Oh wait, maybe it is. Maybe it is. The idolatry of the harlot is economic. Listen, if we don't think that the Lamb calls us to a completely different economic system than the world, we've got another thing coming. Revelation calls us out of one system into the other before it's too late. Jesus makes it quite clear, not only in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, but throughout His teaching. In fact, many people are quick to point out, sadly, not often for the right reasons, but many preachers are quick to point out that Jesus talks more about money than just about anything else. What they fail to mention is that he doesn't talk more about money so that the preacher can get more of it. He talks more about money because our hearts are in the wrong place concerning money so often. Every economic system, every, Every economic system favors one people group over the other, except one. We'll talk about that one momentarily. You see, for instance, I I do think history favors the idea that capitalism has improved the status of more people than any other system. But don't kid yourself. It has accomplished this on the backs of others, and it continues to do so to this day. It is no accident that the first one to build a city in Genesis is Cain, the murderer. The two go together. Cities, which became empires at that time, did so at the cost of life. All who have been slaughtered, as we read earlier. This prosperity at a cost to others is at the heart of why everything is made in China, for instance, today. You see, we we got rid of slavery, so we had to find another form of slave labor. And we got rid of that one, so then we had to find another one. Well, finally, we're left with China. They got so many people, they don't really care. And since they don't care, well, it's not us that doesn't care. It's them that doesn't care. We'll just trade with them and profit off of their not caring. Because we're going to ignore the fact that that means that we don't care. That's at the heart of many of our trade agreements, this building on the lives and backs of others. It's at the heart of our immigration crisis today and all the policies. It explains why virtually... No politician, once they get to Washington, wants to solve the issue. No one wants to solve the issue. And I only added the word virtually in case anyone wants to argue that they know one that does want to solve it. Maybe you do. I don't know. I can't, I can't prove that not a single one wants to once they get there. But experience tells me that not a single one wants to once they get there. Why? Because it keeps them in power and it's the power of our economic engine. Nobody is willing to crash the economy to solve the issue. Well, it truly doesn't explain everything, but no explanation without it is complete. You see, eventually, even capitalism will fail because there is only one economic system that can bring peace and justice, the peace and justice we all long for, and that's the one of the Lamb. It is good news to the poor. 
It is not an earthly governmental system. No earthly governmental or economic system will ever solve the poverty problem. There's only one that can, which we see in Acts chapter 2 and 4, that for these moments of time there was no poverty among them. Why? Because they were practicing the economics of the Lamb. The harlot's charms are seductive, the harlot's crimes are destructive, and the harlot's harlot's collapse is redemptive. Let's look at the harlot's collapse in the third point. Chapter 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. But by earthly measure... Rome, or present-day Babylon, whatever it is today, appears to be eternal, safe, and secure. The church appears to be nothing. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, Paul tells us. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Outwardly, Rome was wise. Rome was strong. Rome was the things that are, as Paul put it. Rome, the eternal city, was not so eternal after all. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That description that follows, she becomes a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. That description is a description of how a desert place would be described regularly in the Old Testament prophets. Deserts cannot sustain life. The the very place people cling to for safety, Babylon, the empire, And sustainability, that place is the place they cannot thrive. Because in reality, when you pull back the veil, it's a desert place. The church today is way too impressed with the outwardly eternal city, Babylon. We imitate it in order to attract people. Yet if we attract them with the wrong things, we're going to have to keep them with the wrong things. And in the end, I fear that what we will have built will be the wrong thing to to boot. For the city of God cannot be built the same way as the city of man. The suffering that seems to be eternal, that we all experience, will in due season come to a quick end. We read in 18 verse 10, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. And in verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Again in verses 21 through 23, with such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. Everyone who weeps over the collapse of Babylon. If you read through those chapters and you find all those weeping, everyone who's weeping profited from her system. Everyone who's weeping profited from her system. 
and listen, every Babylon of every age will eventually fail because Christ's reign has begun. We referred to this earlier in the reading, the, the Advent reading, but when pregnant Mary visited and also pregnant Elizabeth, both impossible situations, listen to what Mary cries out. He has, speaking of the Lord, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He, was, he has filled the hungry with good things, but He has sent the rich away empty. Listen, the kingdom of Jesus, God's promised king, will perpetually disrupt the power systems of this age, whether political, economic, or social, will continue to disrupt them. And he does that as his faithful followers refuse the idolatry of the world's economic systems and live in obedience to his, which is good news to the poor. Now that one needs an amen. You see... Jesus disrupts the systems of this world as his faithful followers refuse the idolatry of this world's economic systems and live in obedience to his economic system, which is indeed good news to the poor. Amen. Amen. You see, not everyone weeps at the fall of Babylon. There's a whole bunch of rejoicing going on in our scene. In fact, in chapter 19, the first eight verses have four refrains of exuberant praise. Chapter 19, let's begin in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude. Remember the great multitude? They keep popping up throughout this book. The roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Then again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! See, there's a lot of happiness in heaven over what has happened. And, and verses, starting in verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great, or great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. Here they are again. Like the roar of rushing waters, like, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then note the parenthetical statement. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people, the righteous deeds of God's holy people. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that the author chose not just to say the righteousness of God's holy people. Because righteousness can be taken either way as as our actual deeds of righteousness, or as some status we have because it's been gifted to us. And post-Reformation, we read the New Testament, and we almost always default to a status given to us because of a legal act that happened at the cross. And that's all well and good and true, except that it doesn't apply in as many places as we think it should apply. And so I just love that the author here spelled it out so that we couldn't get it wrong. The righteous acts, the righteous deeds of God's holy people, His saints. Now, why are all these people so happy? Why is there so much rejoicing? Well, it is not a bunch of people rejoicing over the death of our enemies. No, this is the rejoicing of people for justice 
the, for justice for those who have been crushed by the boots of their enemies. It's a rejoicing that the blood of God's servants spilled. The souls who were under the altar in chapter 6 have been avenged in the collapse of the economic system that killed them. It's the rejoicing over the reign of the Lord God Almighty. The increase of Jesus' reign will never end as His bride puts on her fine linen, the fine linen of the true city of righteous works, the very works that free the people who are enslaved by the economic system of the harlot. Listen, the church is the OG justice warriors. The true ones, for they are not seeking their own good, but that of others. So many justice seekers are really out for their own good in this world. Should be no surprise to us, of course. But as the people of God, learning from the Lamb, we should be justice warriors that are out purely for the good of others. In the name of Christ. The harlot's collapse is redemptive in the same way that the fall of the Third Reich was redemptive. We rejoice. In the same way that the South's fall in the Civil War was redemptive, we rejoice. You know, Domitian, who was emperor at the time that this book was written, he was a cruel leader. He was the persecutor of the church. He was worshipped by the masses. (laughs) And yet, he was assassinated shortly after the writing of this book, and the citizens of Rome erased his name from the statues that had been built to honor him. You, you now have statues of Domitian with no name. In the honor of, and then it's just blank, because they've gone back and, and, and ground down the stone. That's the effort they had to go to, because it was carved in stone to make it a blank name. That's how much they really hated him, though they worshipped him. The harlot's charms are seductive. The harlot's crimes are destructive. The harlot's collapse is redemptive. As the authors of Unveiling Empire put it, New Jerusalem is found wherever the human community rejects the lies and the violence of empire and places God at the center of its shared life. New Jerusalem is found wherever the human community rejects the lies and violence of the empire and places God at the center of its shared life. Don't let the imagery of the harlot fool you. This text is not concerned with the way a woman dresses. It's concerned with the desires of the saints, which is directly tied to their pursuit and use of resources. It's not about fornication, except metaphorically. It's about greed and generosity. The allure of the harlot tempts us to partake in a system that enriches the rich and forgets the poor. Have we, in any area of our lives, bowed to an economic system that honors, you name it, and ours, it's ownership that it honors, rather than the economic system of Jesus that pursues restoration to all? At the heart of Jesus' economic system is jubilee. At the heart of his system is restoration to all. That's the driving motive of his economic system restoration for all any other economic system pales in comparison to its effectiveness but the catch is we actually have to start living in it for it to make a difference we have to actually take it up as oh yeah jesus really does reign because he really does reign one of the biggest problems with how we've read the book of revelation well Two problems. One, we might as well just cut it out of our Bibles because 
since it by and large is ununderstandable for most of us, we, we just ignore it. But if we even take the attempts that have been had, they, they put everything in it off to some future point, and we, we lose its call to come out of Babylon today. We lose its call to change how we live our lives today. That's such a vital thing for us today. And it was vital for them in their day. Remember, Jesus had some pretty severe warnings for the seven church, some of the seven churches as to what would happen if they didn't repent. But those are applicable to all of us today as well, where that repentance is not had. Let us bow to an economic system that honors Jesus as king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this book uses so many vivid pictures and descriptions that they just they, they kind of wow our imagination. But let us not get sidetracked by that. Let us hone in on its claim on our lives. To not be so impressed by the harlot and all her prosperity and wealth to value things differently because of Jesus, the Lamb. Amen.